Good morning, clerks. Welcome back to another episode of The Clerk Commute. Hello, and welcome back to The Clerk Commute. I'm Brendan, one of your hosts, and with me today is Lauren. Today's episode is going to run through an introduction to the OBGYN triage and the components of a solid history and physical exam. This episode was edited by Dr. Shira Gold, a PGY-5 at the University of Toronto Obstetrics and Gynecology program. All right, let's get started. Lauren, you'll be acting as a CC3 on their first night of an OBGYN call shift, whose staff asked them to check out a few patients in triage and report back with an oral presentation and plan. Here we go. Sounds good, Brendan. But before we jump into our history, let's answer the question, what is triage? Good point. Triage is essentially a mini emergency room for the labor and delivery ward. It is located right near the delivery rooms and this is where patients come when they are more than 20 weeks pregnant and have concerns about themselves or their babies. Patients under 20 weeks pregnant go to the regular emergency department. Common reasons to come to triage would be if the patient thinks they are in labor, they are feeling decreased fetal movements, they've had leakage of fluids, or if they are bleeding. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you. So what is my role as a clerk heading over to triage? So that depends a little bit on the presenting complaint. Much like eMERGE, the clerk's role will be to take a history, review the patient chart, and review the investigations, in this case, fetal heart rate tracings. Then they report back to the resident or staff with a history, a plan of what they'd like to do in terms of physical exam and investigations, and their impression of the visit. A big piece of triage will also be deciding whether you need to admit the patient for example, if they were in the active phases of labor and were going to deliver soon. Amazing. I don't remember a ton from pre-clerkship about OBGYN. Is there a specific history and or questions that I should be asking for these women? Yes, there are a few things you are going to ask literally every single patient that comes to triage. And if you ask these questions, you will already have a good majority of your history and an idea of what is going on. I will try and explain why we ask these questions too. Let's get started. The first thing you want to get on history is your OB one-liner, which is how you will start your oral presentation and written notes. It sounds something like this. Miss X is a 32-year-old G3P1 at 38 weeks and 3 days presenting with third trimester bleeding. As a side note, gestational age refers to the number of weeks since the mom's last period and fetal age is the day of conception, roughly two weeks after the last age. So fetal age is always less than gestational age. Typically, when we talk about weeks, we mean gestational age. Oh, right. I remember more about G's and P's. Let me confirm. So G means gravita, which describes the total number of times that this person has ever been pregnant before, including if the patient is currently pregnant. This also includes ectopic pregnancies, spontaneous abortions, and therapeutic abortions. Now, we have to ask about P, which is parity. Parity describes any delivery after 20 weeks, regardless of whether this is a live birth. You also want to ask about how many children they have living at home. Hey, Brendan, why is a previous pregnancy history important to ask? Great question, Lauren. Let's take an example of someone who comes into triage with contractions that are regular, painful, but still pretty far apart, and on vaginal exam, she is closed and long, i.e. her cervix has yet to dilate and deface. The woman would be considered to be in the latent phase of the first stage of labor. For a primip, meaning a mom who has never given birth before, this phase of labor can be really long, up to 6 to 18 hours, and in some cases, even as long as 24 to 48 hours, and so you might send them home. If this was someone who is a maltip, meaning someone who has had at least one baby in the past, this phase of labor is shorter, typically between 2 to 10 hours. If a maltip is long and close on the vaginal exam, you may still send them home. 
However, if they are, say, two centimeters dilated, you might want to admit this patient right away. Okay, awesome. And I vaguely remember being told about four questions you ask literally every single patient coming into the LMD triage. What are those again? Ah, uh, yes. The four questions you want to ask every person coming into triage. Number one, you should ask, are you having any contractions? Number two, are you leaking any fluid? And if so, was it a gush of fluid or is it a constant slow trickle? Ask about the color of the fluid, etc. Question three, are you having any vaginal bleeding? And question four, are you feeling the baby move? The answers to these questions have a big impact on management and should be included in your oral presentation and written notes to the residents and staff. This would sound something like this. We have a 32-year-old G3P2 at 38 weeks presenting with reduced fetal movements. She is not experiencing contractions, she has not had any leakage of fluid, and she has not noticed any vaginal bleeding. On your written note, people often use the short terms plus plus FM for fetal movements, PVB for pervaginal bleeding, and LOF for leakage of fluid, and CXT for contractions. Right, I remember these questions, but do you mind reminding me why they are important to ask? Yes, we will start with question one. If a patient is coming in with contractions, what do you think you're trying to figure out? Okay, so I guess I'm trying to figure out if this patient is in labor, so if they're having real contractions versus if these ca contractions are practice contractions, which are also called Braxton Hicks contractions. Braxton Hicks contractions are irregular uterine contractions of unchanged intensity and duration with no cervical dilation or effacement over time. They commonly precede real contractions, and you will want to differentiate between them before presenting to their resident or staff. We will go over specific questions to ask in our next episode about whether the patient is in labor. So the next question, have you experienced leakage of fluid? Why might this be an important question to ask? Well, a gush of fluids might mean that the patient has broken her water, i.e. the amniotic sac. Some women, not all, break their waters prior to going into labor, and so it is important to explore leakage of fluids because it gives us an idea about whether labor is imminent. But I don't understand. If they're leaking fluids and it's not amniotic fluid, what fluid would they be leaking? Great question, Lauren. Well, there's a couple things, and we'll speak more about how to assess leakage of fluids in episode 3. But briefly, this fluid might be urine as a product of the growing uterus pushing on the bladder, and it might also be normal changes in discharge that the patient experiences as she gets closer to labor. Okay, cool, thanks. And so what about vaginal bleeding? That sounds like it's always concerning. Well, not necessarily. The most common reason for third trimester bleeding is something called bloody show, which is bleeding as the cervix starts to dilate initially, but it is completely benign and normal. However, third trimester bleeding can also be two very dangerous things you want to rule out. These are placental abruption and placental pervia. Placental abruption is when the placenta partially or completely detaches from the uterine wall, and placenta previa is when the placenta is overlying the cervical opening, which can lead to heavy bleeding if the cervix is starting to open. Yes, we will have an episode about third trimester bleedings and the important investigations to consider to rule out the concerning etiologies. If the patient confirms that they have pervaginal bleeding, or PVB on the notes, you also want to ask about their group and screen and consider giving Rogam. Exactly. Group and screen is a blood test that tells you the patient's blood group, which describes her ABO and RH status, and the screen part describes the presence of existing antibodies. This is important because if an RH-negative mom is carrying an RH-positive baby, there is a risk that the baby's blood will get into the mom's bloodstream and cause her to develop antibodies against Rh-positive blood. 
This can cause hemolysis and anemia of the fetus or newborn in a future pregnancy if the baby is Rh positive. We have something called Rogam, which is essentially exogenous immunoglobulin for Rh positive blood. This stops the patient from producing antibodies and thus reduces the risk of serious morbidity and mortality. In the case of any vaginal bleeding throughout the pregnancy, even from the third trimester, there is a risk of maternal and fetal blood mixing and hence an opportunity to provide Rogam. Great, thanks. Okay, finally, so the last question is, are you feeling the baby move? What is a normal amount of movement? What if the mom says she's not sure how much the baby is moving and why is it relevant for us to know? Great question. So OBGYNs use fetal movement essentially as a marker of fetal well-being. We will have an episode about reduced fetal movements, but to briefly go over what is normal movements, women should start to become aware of fetal movements around 22 to 26 weeks gestation. Most moms will have a sense of what their normal is and will have been instructed to count fetal movements for two hours on their own if they are feeling reduced fetal movements. In the two hours, they should feel the baby move at least six times. You can ask the patient if she's tried this strategy already and whether she felt at least six movements. In the hospital, we have the luxury of other forms of monitoring fetal well-being, so sometimes mom will come in if they feel reduced movements just for a peace of mind to know that their baby is okay. Okay, so I understand why we're asking those questions now. What else should I be asking every single patient that comes into triage? Much like in the non-OB world, you will want to know about their past medical history and specifically if they've had any medical problems during this pregnancy. The two most common problems they might be aware of are hypertension or preeclampsia and gestational diabetes. You should ask specifically about these two conditions if they do not bring them up because both have specific management considerations. You also want to ask about any drug allergies, current medications, etc. that you would ask in any normal history that you might have on that might have an impact on the person's stay in the hospital. Also, I guess we should talk about any complications in previous pregnancies. If someone might be going into labor literally that night, you'd want to know if their last pregnancy had any form of hemorrhage, whether it was a small baby, large baby, preterm birth, and what previous mode of delivery, delivery there was. Sometimes a previous C-section means that they need another one. And in any case, you'll definitely want to tell your staff if they've had a previous C-section. Also, if they've had any abdominal surgeries in the past is quite relevant. Yes. Okay, we've gone over a lot of the history. Let's move on to our physical exam. Okay, there are two kinds of physical exams that medical students can do unsupervised. One of which is Leopold's maneuvers. This is where we palpate the woman's abdomen to try and palpate the fetus position. Another thing we can do is palpate contractions of a person who is coming and presenting in query labor. We really shouldn't be doing any pelvic exams without a staff or resident present. There are two types of pelvic exams, the speculum exam and the cervical exam, and each serves slightly different purposes. You may be familiar with another exam called the bimanual, which is where you use one hand vaginally and the other hand abdominally to, to try and figure out the size and position of the uterus and palpate the adnexae. However, this exam is mostly for gynecology and does not apply here. You can't really feel anything in the abdomen when the pregnant is patient. What does the speculum exam allow us to see? The speculum exam allows us to visualize the cervix and inside the vagina, versus the cervical exam allows us to feel for changes of the cervix, including dilation, how open the cervix is, effacement, how thin the cervix has become in preparation for labor, and the station, how far down the baby's presenting fetal part is in relation to the mom's ischial spines. Okay, great. So let's talk about when we use each of the exams in triage with some examples. Let's say your patient presents with regular contractions and a gush of fluid. What exams would you do? 
Okay, so I would go to my staff and I would suggest that we did a sterile speculum exam to A, see the fluid, and specifically to look if it's pooling in the back of the vagina or the posterior fornix. As well, I would take a sample of the fluid to test it with the pH paper and look at it under the microscope for possible ferning. We'll cover more about these tests in episode 3. Then, I would probably recommend a cervical exam if I thought that the patient was in labor. The definition of labor requires both contractions as well as cervical change, so the cervical exam can be super helpful for the ass assessment of change in this case. Awesome. Okay, and what about for vaginal bleeding? What physical exams might you do then? When considering physical exams for vaginal bleeding, one very, very, very important thing to do is to rule out placenta previa, low-lying placenta. If you do a bimanual exam, when someone with a low-lying placenta, you can cause immediate and severe hemorrhaging leading to maternal and neonatal instability. But once placenta previa is ruled out, certain physical exams might be helpful to find the etiology of pervaginal bleeding. For example, the speculum exam might be helpful because sometimes the cause of the bleeding is from outside the cervix. For example, if someone has a friable cervix. You can see this on the speculum exam. The speculum exam can be useful if you can physically see the blood coming from elsewhere, which would reassure you about where the bleeding was coming from. Okay, and finally, what about if a woman presents with reduced fetal movements? What vaginal exams might you perform and why? I know you will definitely order investigations, which we'll talk about in another episode, but I don't actually think that reduced fetal movement alone would be a reason to do a vaginal exam, right? Right you are. Okay, we've gone over a lot in this episode today. Remember, triage is essentially a mini emergency room that moms who are over 20 weeks gestation can come to when they have concerns or have questions. As a clerk, you'll be taking histories and triage a lot, so it is important to have an approach. Let's see what you've learned. Can you summarize your approach to a history and physical exam and triage, Lauren? Of course, yes. So first, I'm going to get mom's one-liner, which talks about her age, her G's and P's, her gestational age, and her chief complaint. Next, I'm going to ask the four vital questions. One, are you having contractions? Two, are you having bleeding from the vagina? Three, has there been any leakage of fluids? And four, are you feeling the baby move? Then I'm going to ask about her past medical history and past obstetric history, including any complications in this pregnancy or previous pregnancies, including hypertension and gestational diabetes. We will consider doing a vaginal or speculum exam depending on the presenting complaint, and it sounds like we will learn a lot about investigations to order and more about approaches to specific triage problems in future episodes. Great. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we hope to see you next time. Bye.